This is Radio Free Signs of the Times, broadcasting into the heart of occupied America. Welcome to this edition of the Signs of the Time podcast. Tonight, joining Scotty and me, we have Laura Knight Yadjik. Many of you come to the podcast through the Signs of the Times page and Following the links from the signs page, you will have seen that the signs is part of a larger uh, network of websites that includes Cassiopeia.org and QuantumFuture.net. The Signs of the Times website covers mostly current events, political information, world affairs, earth changes, information that we think people need to know if they're going to be able to look at the world objectively. Our Signs of the Times is, in a sense, the result of many years of previous work by Laura and Ark. Laura's life is pretty well detailed in the Cassiopeia.org website, and Ark's work is uh, available for people to read on the QuantumFuture.net website. So for our listeners who may only know the signs of the times. This week we wanted to sit down with Laura and talk about her other work, the work that made it all happen that's part of the Cassiopeia.org site. Because those who come, because we have a very strong position about what is happening in the world and who may have a political background, uh, we know that some of our readers are a little surprised by some of the topics that are discussed on our other websites. And so we wanted to get into this in a little more detail to show you that the same critical spirit that's brought to the signs of the times informs all of the work of the quantum future group. You can't really separate signs of the times from this other work that's preceded it and that is going on at the same time. The Cassiopeian experiment is unique as far as we know in its approach to science and mysticism. At the same time, it can lead to some misconceptions because of the way certain terms have been co-opted and used by New Age people. So we'd like to get into a little discussion with Laura tonight about what makes the Cassiopeian experiment unique. So Laura, what makes the Cassiopeian experiment unique? (laughs) Probably pure unadulterated cussedness on my part. (laughs) Uh, That's said with a little bit of humor, but... It's actually, in a certain sense, true. I probably ought to give a little background on how it came about. Many people write to me and tell me, oh, we're going to go out and buy a Ouija board, or we have already bought a Ouija board, and and we're going to sit down, or I'm going to sit down, and I'm going to attip, attempt to contact the Cassiopeians or my spirit guides or whatever. And I generally have a very mixed reaction to such questions or declarations. Uh, On the the one hand, I don't want to give the impression that I think that I'm the only one who can do it. But on the other hand, I very much want people to understand exactly what it is they're getting into and to be properly prepared and to have the skills that are necessary for engaging in any such Uh, so-called spirit communication. And in this case, I'm not even sure that spirit communication is entirely accurate. Well, as I understand your work over the last, uh, I'd say, 30 years, you were 
fascinated by the human unconscious and human intuition. And you were attempting to find a way to tap into those aha moments that we have, but to do it in a way that was more regular, um, something that wasn't kind of haphazard as, as answers to questions appearing in dreams, that kind of thing. You were trying to find a way where the link to this part of ourselves that produces these unexpected answers to questions that we have could be stabilized and uh, some sort of a permanent link could be formed to it. Well, that's part of it. I think I think what what really stimulated me was that I had read so much literature, so much material that indicated strongly that there was certainly another reality that interacts with our own in in mysterious ways. The problem seemed to be, of course, that it was very unstable, it was iffy, uh, it was not subject to being put under a microscope or weighed or measured. It was like mercury. You you see it there and it's glistening and and vibrating like a like a little liquid ball on a table and then you go to try to pick it up and it breaks into, you know, a thousand pieces and scatters in all directions. Probably the best way to explain the kinds of things that I was thinking many years ago, well, 20, you know, 15, 20 years ago, was an incident that occurred at the time of the explosion of the space shuttle. The Challenger, was it? Yeah. Uh, where all of the astronauts, including the school teacher, were killed. And, of course, I lived in Florida at the time, and I'd had an interesting dream that night, and I had had many prophetic dreams throughout my life. And sometimes the the absolute mundane nature of these prophetic dreams was was really puzzling. It was like, you know, why would the subconscious bother to send a signal about something so ordinary, something that, that, that portended nothing and just simply happened as it was dreamed? Uh, a specific example was I dreamed one night about seeing a particular dog uh, lying in a particular uh, way in a in a hole he had dug in, in in a sandy driveway and the next day I visited a friend and next door there was a sandy driveway with the exact same dog lying in the in the hole he had dug in the sand nothing extraordinary happened there was no mysterious experience there was no significant event of any sort there was just a dream the night before about a specific dog in a specific position in a specific type of hole, and, and, and there it was. So its meaning was really nothing more than just showing you that there was something more to this reality than we're used to, to accepting in our day-to-day well, life. Assuming, yeah, that, that's the only meaning that I can give to it because that sort of thing happened so frequently that produced in me a... a you know, powerful curiosity about what kind of reality it was that was interacting with our own that could that could give these kinds of clues and hints or or uh, previews even. And getting back to the time of the of the shuttle disaster, once again I had a, had a dream. I dreamed about being in a in a place where there were where there where it was a very mysterious background like. Uh, 
uh, trees without leaves on them, cold and dreary. And there was um, kind of like a voice, a voiceover that that indicated to me that the scenery belonged to the Edgar Allan Poe story, The Fall of the House of Usher. The next part of the dream was I was standing with my children looking over the tops of these winter bear trees, and in the distance we saw a curling tornado type of cloud, a curling cloud coming down from the sky, and I knew as I was watching it that it was that it was death, and that's the only way I can explain it. And I said to my children in the dream, you know, what we are seeing is death. People are dying, but don't worry, it 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 can't touch us. And then I woke up, having dreamt about what I perceived to be as as a tornado. I, I had no other. Uh, associations to interpret a a curling cloud coming down from the sky that portended death other than a tornado. So I wondered if there had been a tornado in the night somewhere that had uh, had killed other people at some distance. So I got up and turned on the radio to listen to the news. And the first thing I heard was that the shuttle launch was in its final countdown. So I hurried up and, and called my children and got the binoculars and went out into our yard to watch in the, in the proper direction to see if we could catch a glimpse of the shuttle going up. And we went out there, and, and it was, of course, winter, and we were surrounded by, by oak trees, which were bare. And none of that made any real impression on me at the moment. It was only... When I saw the, you know, I had my had the binoculars and I was watching in the right area, and I saw the flash and I immediately, you know, tried to steady the binoculars to see what had happened because I thought it was, the, you know, the staging of the, of the rocket booster, you know, when the when the bottom part of the rocket falls off, and I got the image in the binoculars and there was the exact curling cloud that I had seen in my dream. And I had a a very strange sensation, and the next thing that happened was we were listening to the to the radio through the window, and the announcer came on and and was began to talk about the problems that were happening with the shuttle. And I knew right then that they were, you know, that there was a serious problem. What didn't occur to me was the meaning of the fall of the House of Usher until later, and it was only later when there were when there were many discussions about what may or may not have happened, and there was a lot of speculation that they were still alive when the uh, when the shuttle itself plunged into the ocean, and that they may not have died until some mm-hmm. period of time had passed. And of course, the theme of the Edgar Allan Poe story, the fall of the House of Usher, is premature burial, being burial, mm-hmm. buried alive, yeah. alive. So this this event, which was really quite shocking and it was you know a number of people died violently it was it was pretty horrible it was it was shocking to the country it was shocking to me it was shocking to my children there i was standing with my children we saw the space shuttle blow up and people died that was that was not what you'd call a really pleasant experience 
but what what really drove me crazy was, well, here I had this dream that gave me some very accurate symbols, although I had no uh, no tools with which to interpret them. I didn't have a dictionary that said, oh, curling cloud means space shuttle. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have uh, a dictionary that says, oh, when, when, you, when you get the voiceover that says fall of the house of Usher, it means, you know, somebody's going to fall into the ocean, you know, in a shuttle and mm-hmm. they're going to, you know, die slowly. So I didn't have a dictionary. I didn't have any interpretation manual, but I had accurate symbols. Mm-hmm. So I asked myself, what is the point? You know, is this some mysterious, you know, prophetic ability? Do people have these mysterious prophetic abilities? And are they generally like this? Is it is it that we really can't interpret them? You know, what what is the point of having such an ability if it doesn't do anybody any good? I mean, if I had called NASA on the phone after, if I had had a dictionary that mm-hmm. told me mm-hmm. the space shuttle is going to blow up, the people are going to die. And I got on the phone and I called NASA. I mean, can we imagine what would have happened? You probably would have been taken as a crank call until it exploded. And and then I would have been arrested. Then you would have been arrested, for, yeah. For, <laughs> for knowing something they didn't know. So, so that, that, that sort of thing... It it makes you think of the uh, of the what is it Cassandra uh, mm-hmm. issue, which is you know somebody who can prophesy, but they're doomed to no one ever believing them. Yeah, which would have to be you know terribly frustrating. But nevertheless, I realized that despite the fact that that many so-called scientists who say that. You know, there is no such thing as, as psychic ability or, you know, psi phenomena, et cetera, that it's, that it's, all, um, it's all fake or it's just totally coincidental. My own experiences showed me that this was absolutely not true because throughout my life I'd had these kinds of dreams. And here, finally, at this one point in time, there was one that meant something significant and it meant it significant in a big way. It wasn't just a dog. You know, in, in a hole dug in a in a sandy driveway, it was a space shuttle blowing up. Mm-hmm. So, so the question I had was, okay, this is real. It really happens. It really exists. Now, what's the point, and what can we do with it? Well, of course, I'm not the first person who's ever asked those questions. Um, there are, you know, departments and universities that have been set up to study those questions. There have been, you know, elaborate experiments uh, created and carried out over long periods of time with lots of volunteers and probably people a whole heck of a lot more psychic than I am. Nevertheless, it was a very powerful question inside me, so I wondered if, just on my own, if I could do something, some little experimentation, find out something about it. Could I Could I strengthen it? Could I enhance it? Could I, you know, do something within safe parameters that would, uh, that would produce something that was useful, not only for myself, but perhaps for other people? So I decided, first of all, before I even tried to do anything like that, I ought to gather some data. I wanted to just find out, you know, what, what the parameters were. And... I wanted to do things that were more or less blind and at the same time I wanted to do things that didn't have any emotional connection to them because you know I didn't want any emotional issues to come into play 
So what I devised at the very beginning was uh, something where you could have an immediate feedback, which was, uh, in, in this case, dog races. The reason is that they have dog races in Tampa every day, probably every day of the year, at least every week, I'm sure. But there's a, there's a season for dog races, and there there is always a column in the paper where the dogs are listed and then... Uh, the, the races they're going to run and the odds that are on them and so on and so forth. So I wanted to see if I could pick the winning dogs and dog races. And, of course, it had nothing to do with betting anything because I certainly wasn't going to go to the dog races and place any money on them. I just was going to keep tracks of the names of the dogs, and I was going to select winners, and I was going to do it over a long period of time and keep uh, keep records. So I did that. I did a oh for probably six months I I uh, predicted dog races and then I graduated to horse races and never at any time did I ever bet on a race but I you know picked dogs and I picked horses and did you end up having a better than statistically kind of a probable no no <laughs> no if I had just randomly picked them because I did also go through a period where you know just to just just to see what the difference would be mm-hmm. I did a, a I went through a period where I randomly selected mm-hmm. dogs and horses and the, it just seemed to be six of one half a dozen of the other I mean I, I did as well randomly picking them as I did you know deliberately picking them and trying to see if there was you know, any any feeling or sensation I got from reading the name of the dog or, mm-hmm. you know, which was which, which what, what I was going for to see if there was anything about, uh, you know, symbolism that came through in that way. But nothing – it basically it was a complete flop. <laughs> <laughs> so – but I was not discouraged because I continued to have dreams that were <laughs> – that But that no, were not accurate. about the dog races. But, oh, no. <laughs> well – well, actually, at one point, I did dream about a, a, a lottery number, and, and it did win. And I did bet. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so I was pretty happy about that. But even that dream was very strange. I dreamed that uh, in my dream, I, I asked someone to go to the store and buy me a pack of cigarettes. Mm-hmm. In the dream, they went to the store, they came back with the pack of cigarettes, and they said... The cigarettes cost, I think, something like three three seventy nine or or something like that. I don't remember the exact number. And I said, "Well, that's outrageous." And that was the that end was of the a dream. Long time ago, huh? that was that was yeah, it was a long time ago. That was absolutely the whole dream. I mean, there was nothing else to it. It was just a request for somebody to buy me cigarettes. They they went to get the cigarettes, came back, and told me what they mm-hmm. had cost. Well, as it happened, that very morning when I woke up, right after having this dream, I discovered that I only had two cigarettes left in my pack in the house. So I asked my then-husband to go to the store and get me a pack of cigarettes. And he dutifully went out the door to go get me a pack of cigarettes. And as he was backing out of the driveway, I suddenly remembered the dream. And I ran to the door, and I said, play these three numbers. On, on the daily, uh, they had, they had a, a pick three game. And I said, play these three numbers. Mm-hmm. And I shouted them out at, at, across the driveway, and and then, then I forgot about it. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, you know, you're talking about a dollar, and you're talking about, you know, like a daily win that's not going to be, you know, an enormous amount of money anyway, so it's certainly not something to get stressed out over. 
And as it turned out, later that evening, I was sitting at the television watching the news, and they announced the winners for the pick three game, and it was my three numbers, but in a different order. (laughs) (laughs) So so I ran uh, to to ask my husband, did you play my numbers? You know, because I was thinking, oh, God, you know, I had my fingers crossed. I hope he boxed his bet. So I I found him, and I asked him, and I said, did you play them? He says, yes, and I boxed them and bought three tickets. (laughs) So I said, yes. So I had... uh, uh, a nice little little chunk of change out of three tickets uh, of box bets. So these kinds of things were, you know, part of my normal life. And we're not talking about, you know, any kind of major, from my point of view, major psychic experiences. We're not talking about somebody, you know, going into a shivery state and, and their eyeballs rolling up in their head and they have some kind of vision and say, oh, you know, I see you going to a foreign land. You're there. You're going to meet a, you know, a tall, dark stranger and, and uh, you know, anything weird like that, which I would consider to be, you know, a really outstanding psychic experience. I wasn't having anything like that. I was, you know, I was having phones ring and know who was, who was, uh, was calling. I was thinking about somebody and having them show up at the door, even if I hadn't seen them for six months. I was mm-hmm. having dreams about extremely mundane things that happened exactly as I dreamt them the next day. Um, that sort of thing. So I knew that there was something, something puzzling, and these were the kind. And, and I discovered, as I said, from my my experiments with picking dogs and picking horses, that uh, that sort of thing just really didn't go anywhere, and that was very puzzling to me. Well, there's two things you've said so far <clears throat> that uh, you said earlier something about scientists and uh, scientists disregarding these things, but I think we should also point out because psychic phenomena, this kind of thing, is really seen by most people as being completely unscientific, but there are scientists who are studying it there are scientists who take it very, very seriously, and there are also scientists uh, who talk about these other realities that you have mentioned being perhaps the source of, of these experiences. So just to clarify for our listeners, yes, there is scientific interest in this. It's Absolutely. My husband is a scientist, and he's definitely interested in it, and he definitely listens to me when I have dreams. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, just... But this gets into what makes the Cassiopeian experiment unique, is this blend of the science on the one hand and the openness to these strange experience, anomalies, intuition, psychic experiences on the other, and attempting in the long run to understand these things that we consider to be completely weird today, to eventually understand them scientifically. Yes, and that was another thing that uh, I was doing, uh, another line of, of of work that I was following at the same time because, you know, there I was on the one hand. I w- it, it took me, what, 10 minutes a day to do my little scientific experiment with the dogs or the horses. You know, I had a lot of, a lot of time left in the day, obviously, uh, aside from my normal duties as a, as, you know, mother of children and keeper of the house and chief cook and bottle washer and so forth. So I was, of course, reading a lot, and I had been reading this kind of literature literally since I was about 12 or 13 years old. Back uh, when I was 13, uh, there was an elderly gentleman who was a 
a friend of the family. His mother had died, and all of her furniture and books and things had been shipped to him, which he then set up in his in his Florida style veranda type home out in the woods on uh, on the Gulf of Mexico. And it was really kind of interesting because the mother had had all of this very ornate Victorian type hand carved furniture with horsehair upholstery and 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 bookcases with uh, glass doors that opened with little brass keys and so forth and these bookcases were full of proceedings of the British Society for Psychical Research uh an extraordinary collection of ex- of rare books on all kinds of psychic phenomena she must have been a real uh, a real enthusiast because I think everything that had ever been printed up to that point in time or was available she had in her collection and I was given full access to it when I was 13 years old and I read every book so this was something that had been going on for many years so there I was studying and reading and also at the same time I was I was doing hypnotherapy which was another interesting line of development because I was curious at some point if using hypnosis could enhance psychic ability. Of course, I was curious about using hypnosis to enhance a lot of things. Uh, I remember back in college, a girlfriend and I wondered if we could use hypnosis to change eye color or increase bus size. So, (laughs) (laughs) yes, yes, we tried it. No, it didn't work. But nevertheless, we tried all kinds of different variations of suggestion techniques and and guided meditation techniques. We did a lot of experimentation along that line, and we found a lot of things uh, about hypnosis through these kinds of experiments. And, of course, we had friends and family that volunteered to be subjects for some of these experiments. And, And we basically had a lot of fun even if on occasion we were dealing with some very fairly serious issues with some people. Uh, looking back on it now, at my my excitement with this with this very novel tool. I mean, I was very young, and I was very excited about having something that was so much fun. And I will tell you, um, one of the very first hypnosis sessions I ever did was a uh, a past life regression. A friend of mine in, in college wanted to find out about his past lives. One of the reasons he wanted to find out was, of course, he was in love with a young lady who did not return his affections. So <laughs> this was a setup from the start, but it was really funny. So he wanted to know if she had been his true love in another life because naturally he was going to produce this information to, you know, as as his opening gambit. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he you may wa- not remember me, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I was your husband last time around, so you want to give it another go here? <laughs> so... Uh, so I, I, uh, I agreed because this was going to be fun. And we had two or three other friends sitting around in the, in the uh, living room as we did this session. And, I, you know, the guy was a very good subject, probably one of the best I've ever worked with. Uh, he later went on to, to bigger and better things. But he went under very quickly, very deeply, and very easily. And I gave him the suggestions to go back to that point in, in space-time that, that was of you know particular significance. I can't remember the exact suggestions I made at the, at the time, but basically I got him back to, to a past life, and or I asked him, where are you and what do you see? Which is generally one of the first things I ask somebody is, where are you and what do you see? First, and then try to find out where, where the person is. 
And he said, well, I'm waiting for this fire to get started. And I said, where are you? Well, I'm in my cabin. And I said, where is your cabin? And he acted a little impatient, you know, like, you know, who am I and why am I asking such stupid questions? You know, obviously his his cabin is in New Brunswick. Well, and, and you know, I was I was such an ignorant person at the time. You know, I didn't New Brunswick where New. <laughs> there are several places named New Brunswick. Which one? Well, obviously at that point in time there was only one New Brunswick. So. <clears throat> This this I went on with a little a, a few exchanges and found out that he he was a like a fur trapper lived all alone in this cabin in the woods and and I, I kept asking questions he kept getting more and more irritated with me and finally you know I I asked him well why do you live all alone don't you like people and he says no and as a matter of fact <laughs> I wish you'd go away. <laughs> <laughs> And everybody in the room was just holding their sides, trying not to make any noise because they were all just dying laughing at this at this really, really funny exchange that I was having with this guy. So it was uh, uh, it was pretty funny, and we never did find his lost love in 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 the past life, and and he didn't marry her anyway; he married someone else. So, but that was just a, a funny example of 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 how enthusiastic I was with this. Uh, with this tool and, and trying to find out what it could do and what it couldn't do. As I grew older, of course, I, I became much more serious about it. And and it was, and, and later I, when I was working with actual clients, I was not so lighthearted about it because, of course, they would come to me because they had problems. They didn't come to me because they wanted to, you know, snag a chick. So it was it was quite different. But in any event, there I was doing hypnotherapy, and the thing I noticed about people under hypnosis was that they didn't seem to be a whole heck of a lot more psychic than they were when they were awake either. (laughs) So I was really, really, you know, striking out on all my little experiments trying to find the source and the, and the, uh, you know, the wellspring of psychic ability, the wellspring of, of this you know this bleed through of this other reality i wasn't i wasn't getting anywhere but then i was still continuing to have dreams i was you know convinced from mountains of literature that many unusual things had occurred uh, to many people down through space and time and i wanted to pin this thing down darn it so that was that was where i was and then something rather unusual happened we're going to take a short break well, a man named W rides into town. He's gonna hunt them terrorists down Looks like a monkey and he acts like a clown King George Get on board Get on board he's a king Well, 
with some help from Assad and the CIA. Lock him in Guantanamo and Abu Ghraib. Taking his cue from our key to say King George. Oh, Lord, no, he's a king. Make the world safe for democracy Just like a puppet on his daddy's knee He's gonna start World War Three. talking about this experience many years ago when you were beginning hypnotherapy with someone who was interested in going back to his past lives in order to uh, seduce somebody. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The question of past lives is, of course, uh, very controversial because we have part of the planet that insists that we live once and after that it's finished. And then we have vast... uh, you know, probably billions of people who also think that we live many times and believe in reincarnation. And it's very difficult for somebody who is in the here and now uh, and has no recollection of past lives to kind of decide one way or another on the, the topic. And one also assumes that because we're dealing with death, it's not really something that we can have an easy answer for. What what are your thoughts on past life uh, from your experiences with hypnosis? First of all, I have to say that I was, even though that I I had read all of this vast amount of literature and I'd had psychic experiences, and I was convinced that there was something to the to 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 what we call psi phenomena. I wasn't yet going to decide what it was. Um, I needed more information, more data, and I didn't believe, and, and, and I use the term believe deliberately, I didn't believe in reincarnation. I was very curious about it. There was a lot of material that suggested that it was a reality, and then there was at the same time a lot of material, uh, particularly written by religious types, who would go to great lengths to debunk it and to try to prove that it was a deception of the, of the devil, so to say. And then there were the scientific types who would go to great lengths to debunk and, and try to prove that the individual who uh, may have shown some knowledge of, of another uh, time that they shouldn't have known, that they could have gotten it some other way. So you had the deceptions of the devil, and then you had, you know, unconscious assimilation of knowledge that later came out under hypnosis, and uh, and then the people, of course, who said that it was definitely a reality, and they believed it, no matter what in either of these two groups said. And for you, as an American, I would think that being raised American, most Americans, the vast majority of, Amer- of Americans, being Christian will have a a priori that reincarnation doesn't exist just because it's part and parcel of the culture. Well, I didn't have 
too much of a of a of a firm opinion in that respect because like I said I started reading about these things when I was 13 13 is mm-hmm. a fairly impressionable age so at the age when I could have gone either way instead of reading you know catholic missiles I was reading you know the proceedings of the British Society for Psychical Research <laughs> so I had a little bit different imprinting at that at that period of my life when uh, when interests and and uh uh, opinions about certain things do get do get a lot of input, but still, I was also influenced on the other side by the religious teachings, and I was also influenced by the by the scientific teachings because you know my grandfather was an engineer; he's very scientific, and uh, and in our family, you know, science was uh, was considered. Um, to be, you know, a very respectable point of view, and, and and it actually was a little more respectable than religion. Mm-hmm. Although religion, on in, in some members of the family, was more respectable than science. There, there was you know, a little conflict, not not unlike any other family. But um, as far as reincarnation went, I decided at some point that I was going to try to find out. So, once again, I turned to my pool of subjects, which was, oh, you know, 20 people maybe. And, and here I'm talking about in the, in the earlier days and doing a lot of past life regressions. And at that time, of course, I was using more or less the same formula that uh, was used in the Bridie Murphy uh, experiments. Uh, it was not a very refined uh, formula, but it was it was good enough uh, and fairly effective. And what I found was that there were people who, in one session, would describe a past life and give many details. They would give you know names. They would give places. They would give relationships. They would talk about their experiences and so on and so forth. And then six months later, I would hypnotize the same person and I would I'd go for another past life. You know, there had been probably other sessions in between, and I would go for another one, and they would come up with another lifetime that just happened to be at the same time period or overlapping the time period where they had described a first past life, which, of course, you know, is is absolutely impossible. Well, not absolutely impossible, depending on what theory you're relying on, but under Mm -hmm. the the theory of, of... uh, the, the normal idea that, you know, say a soul incarnates into a body and then it incarnates into another body, then into mm-hmm. another, et cetera, et cetera, it would be a little bit difficult for this person to be having two lives simultaneously. Well, then, of course, along came Seth and multiple realities. So, you know, that, that problem was supposedly solved, but I still wasn't quite convinced of that because I, I would have a subject who was, you know, a maid and a in one life, you know, female, and, and and then at the same time she was a soldier in, a, in an army somewhere at the same time period. In your, your work with the Cassiopeians, have you ever posed the question to them whether one can incarnate in two bodies in overlapping time periods? Yes, because, and they their answer came back that it, it depended on what you called reincarnation and how you define time and, and how you define realities. So, but, but that's getting way ahead of us because, remember, we're still back in the 70s right now. Mm-hmm. And I was still, you know, experimenting, trying to get mm-hmm. information. I wanted to, to find something that was 
frankly, I wanted to find something that was convincing to me. Mm-hmm. And I didn't find anything. Mm-hmm. That was the thing. I didn't find anything that convinced me that any of it was real. Mm-hmm. I still felt that there was a possibility and I was leaving it open. But my own experimental work did not convince me. Back then, were you using this past life uh, regression in a therapeutic way, or was it no, more? No, no. This was this was this was being done purely for information gathering, purely for. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, I'm, I'm sure it was therapeutic accidentally, mm-hmm, but, that but wasn't at, the, the at the time, nobody, uh, or and if there if there was anybody doing past life as a therapy, it wasn't widely known. Mm-hmm. I think maybe Edith Fiore was possibly you know beginning her work and that sort of thing at that point but it wasn't widely known that you know such books hadn't been produced and so basically past life uh, regression was was more done for the sake of curiosity or to or to uh, provide data for researchers to try to determine if reincarnation was or was not a fact mm-hmm. so i didn't get anything that convinced me but I continued to leave it open. So that was why when Edith Fiore came along with her past life therapy, uh, I was quite interested in using it as a therapeutic tool. There was also uh, a psychiatrist, I believe in Toronto, Canada, Joel, well, I don't remember his name. We'll find it out and we'll put it on the science page for those who people yeah. who might be interested. Yeah, but anyway, he was a psychiatrist and he was using past life therapy very effectively. So I was reading this material and I was realizing that there was more that could be done with past life work than I had at that point imagined. And I began to incorporate it as a therapeutic tool because, you know, by this time, you know, the only time I was doing past life therapy or past life work was when Somebody specifically requested it was more for, you know, as you would say, it was more for entertainment purposes. It mm-hmm. was not being done therapeutically. So most of my work with hypnosis was, you know, people who had problems, people who had, uh, you know, allergies, they were stressed or they had, uh, you know, different kinds of, of, of problems that were very annoying to them. And, and there were there were techniques that had been developed to to deal with those, you know, desensitization techniques or uh, guided imagery techniques, you know, to help them to overcome fears or phobias and so on and so forth. So now we had the introduction of past life therapy. And I thought, geez, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. This is really cool. Let me try this. So I began to, to uh, experiment with that. And the results were really nothing short of amazing. Uh, A person who had a, for example, a a phobia that I had worked with several times trying to desensitize them through, you know, standard, you know, guided imagery techniques could be regressed to a past life where an event had occurred that initiated the phobia, which they then carried over into the current life. And once you'd taken them to the past life, you know, walk them through the process, walk them through the, you know, the therapeutic modality of of dealing with the issue. They came back and presto, phobia was gone. You didn't have to spend several sessions of guided imagery. But then as I thought about it, what was past life therapy if it wasn't guided imagery except that as the therapist I was no longer doing the guiding or creating the images or even assisting Mm -hmm. in the images I was letting 
the client do that? It was coming from the the client or the patient himself or herself. Yeah. So my idea was that, well, obviously, you know, this is probably why this is working so well. It may not be that it's because a past life actually Mm -hmm. occurred and that the incident actually occurred, Mm -hmm. but that... Uh, the individual is being allowed to create their own drama, their own scenario, to work through their problem themselves from the, from what's inside them, and that's mm-hmm. what's making it more effective. Mm-hmm. So essentially, I didn't care if past lives were real or not. At this point, I no longer cared mm-hmm. if reincarnation was real or not. I had I had actually I'd gotten to the point where I I, I really didn't care anymore. I only cared that what I was doing was helping these these people I was working with. And when you were able to, in a sense, cure people's phobias of things, was this a long-lasting as far as you, you it know? It was from, done. It was done. It was done. I mean, they might get a new thing, you know, later on down the road, <laughs> but, you know, that one was gone or, mm-hmm. or you know, and it, I mean, it's like body work, you know, you start getting a little body work done and... You have places that hurt that you didn't know hurt, and once they start fixing those and the other places start feeling jealous, you know, they want to get worked on too, <laughs> you know, and, and then you become so accustomed to feeling, you know, perfect that any time any little thing comes along, you, you got to go back to the therapist, you know, hey, you know, do some body work on me quick, you know, mm-hmm. I've got a glitch. So it was, it was, it was kind of like that. So I didn't care whether past lives actually existed or not. Whether it was a reality or not, I only cared that it helped these clients, and it was interesting. And I was I wasn't going for data anymore. I I had long ago lost any interest in that because I'd found so much data that was conflicting. There, I just didn't see any point in it. So I was just going for helping the person to create the drama that, or facilitating them to create the drama that helped them work through their issue and and that was that and whether or not the scenario that they described was was or had been true was immaterial to me mm-hmm. but then something really strange happened well unfortunately that's all the time we have for this week but tune in next week and uh, Laura will continue her fascinating story. So tune in next week for the strangest reincarnation story you'll ever hear. And as always, if you'd like to read some more about the topics we discussed today, you can visit our page at www.signs-of-the-times.org. And thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week.